0: Well, good morning. Did you enjoy that? Yeah. That was great. It's always, uh, it's always great to have our kids with us. Well, um, I want to thank you for coming today. And uh, again, Easter is only one week away. And I want to also thank those of you who started praying each day as I encouraged you to do last week. We asked you if you would just pray some things for um, our Easter services, uh, based on Colossians 4, 2 through 6. And if you were here, you'll remember that. If you weren't here, you can look those verses up and I think you'll see what we were talking about. If you haven't started praying yet, you got a week to go, I would really invite you to join in and pray for us every day that God uh, would be honored and people would be reached uh, this next week as we celebrate the most important Sunday of the year, Easter Sunday. And there's two things that I want to ask you about regarding next week before we jump into our message today. Uh, the first one is, and this is going to be really a big one. Are you, you guys going to have to buckle your seats because eleven o'clock service? Okay, uh, but if you're able, I want to encourage you to attend the eight o'clock service. I, I, it's like uh, I, people are looking at me like, huh? <laughs> um, you know, I, it's, it's like it's an amazing sacrifice. You know, Jesus said, "No man has greater love." than if he got up and went to the 8 o'clock service for his friend. So, uh, but if you can, if it's possible, we would really encourage you because, uh, believe it or not, at nine thirty 30, and 11, uh, we can have overflow and we can ease some of that um, by having some people come earlier and having an amazing service at 8 o'clock in the morning on Easter Sunday. Also, if you just can't do that, some of you won't be able to, and we understand, Uh, If you're part of the Southwinds family, this is not addressed to guests, but if you're part of the Southwinds family and you kind of look around and you see that maybe we're running out of of chairs, if you're willing to walk across the courtyard and go into our student center where we have overflow with a big screen and all kinds of good stuff set up, you can experience Easter worship there, and that would provide a seat for someone else who may be here for the very first time. On Easter Sunday, about 800 to 1,000 people show up who don't normally come here. And so we're going to have a lot of guests, a lot of them maybe for the very first time. We want to provide the very best environment possible for them to hear the message of Jesus' resurrection. Second thing that I want to ask you about, we have been asking and some of you are doing, but it's especially important Easter Sunday. Again, if you're able, we would encourage you to park on our gravel lot, which is right behind here, behind the sprung to provide a space for people who are just showing up for the first time out on our paved lot. Uh, we're asking our Southwinds family to do that, and we want to reserve the paved lot for our guests, uh, for parents who have small kids, and for our seniors as they come, that they will have that access uh, to, to get into our services. In addition, on Easter Sunday, not only do we have some of the parking marked out there, as you can see, we're going to open up, Uh, an area of dirt that's going to be kind of extra uh, for Easter Sunday. And we're asking our staff and we're asking those who are serving, uh, anybody who's able uh, to serve by parking uh, a long way away and walking a few extra steps. Um, And even if you're not serving, if you want to, we'll let you park out there, okay? No one's telling you you can't. If you want to, you can maybe think of it like long-term parking. That's what Jay's been saying, long-term parking, except without the bus to get you to the terminal. You just have to walk. So uh, I I think overall what we're really asking is that all of us be alert and be hospitable and do everything we can uh, to welcome those who are going to show up here maybe for the first time to hear the gospel, uh, the Easter message. Well, this Sunday, uh, which is the Sunday before Easter, is a day where we often spend time thinking about uh, what happened on Good Friday. And that's what we're going to do today. Uh, we're going to look at this uh, history-altering, eternity-shaping event uh, that we know as the cross. Uh, What does the cross mean, and how should the cross impact our lives? And I want to do this by talking for a couple of minutes about logos, okay? Uh, Some of you really like this. Uh, All companies really do dream of coming up with an unforgettable logo that would just grab people's hearts and minds and, make them think of their product. They they want people to see that logo, and they want them to not only think of the company, but think of what the company sells, and of course to buy what the company sells. And I want to demonstrate this by showing you some familiar logos and and talking about them for just a few moments. So this very first one, very familiar, what is this logo for? This is for Nike, right? And uh, there is actually a word for this little design. It is called a... A swoosh, yeah, everybody knows it's the Nike swoosh, and nobody knows what a swoosh is, but there it is. And this logo is the sign of victory. And it's kind of interesting because uh, this word Nike, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but this word Nike comes from a Greek word that means victory. The verb is nikao, their noun is pronounced pretty similarly uh, to Nike, And that's what the word means. It's a a word for victory. It's a word for winning. And we associate this logo with winners, don't we? Um, Like, I don't know if you're remembering this now. I'm realizing that we're getting farther down in history. But there was one athlete who was the very first guy that everybody associated with this logo. Do you remember who he is? Michael Jordan, right? Michael Jordan, the winner. And so people, you know, see the swoosh and they say, you the man, Michael, and and, you know, we, we think, I'm going to buy that thing that has a swoosh on it, that, that shoe, that shirt, because if I wear it, maybe I'll be the man, you know? And, and it's kind of continued down through the years. You know, it's been Tiger, and it's been Kobe, and it's been LeBron. See, we don't even have to use their last names. We just use their first names. We know who these people are, and a lot of us have paid a lot of extra money to buy stuff because it has that swoosh on it, Right? So it's a sign of victory, a sign of winning. Here's another logo. Uh, Which one is this for? I have to tell you, at the 8 o'clock service, somebody who wasn't quite awake yet said, said, Burger King. (laughs) Kind of threw me off for a little bit there. But no, this is the sign of McDonald's. And uh, this is the sign that tells us you deserve a break today, right? And uh, this this logo is a sign of abundance. McDonald's, the home of Ronald McDonald, uh, the home of the Happy Meal, the meal of great joy. (laughs) (laughs) And little kids, little kids, when they see that logo, their hearts beat real fast, and they think, you know, if I can just get my parents to buy me one of those meals, then I will be happy. (laughs) And of course, it doesn't work that way, right? I mean, there's only one person who who's made happy by the billions of Happy Meals sold, and that's Ronald McDonald. But, you know, we see this sign of abundance, and we can get excited because we know you can get wonderful, delicious, fatty, artery-clogging food, and you can get it cheap, and you can get it fast, and you can get it in the drive through lane so your family can eat together in the minivan the way that God intended for families to eat. And Some of you, you know, like, if your kids are a little bit hungry after church... On the way home, you can just tell them to dig around under the seats and there will be some French fries there that they could (laughs) kind of snack on for a little bit, right? Or how about this next one? This is Mercedes Mercedes Benz. And some of you will remember there was actually a song written some years ago in the form of a prayer. And it, it said, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. Now, this is a sign... Of status, right? Status. In fact, um, a few years ago, Mercedes-Benz had an ad that they run that said, you can't buy happiness, but now you can lease it. (laughs) So it's a sign of status. Let me just show you one more. And uh, what does this represent? Apple. So you have this on your laptops. You have this on your desktop desktops, you have this on your phones and your, you know, your iPads and all this thing. It's really interesting. I don't know if you've thought about this before, but have you ever considered what might be the original significance of an image of an apple with a bite taken out of it? This goes, and not everybody's aware of this today because people are not as aware of the Bible, but it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And there's actually some of Apple's earliest ads where they, they tied right, right into that. It's, it's meant to direct our minds, some say, to the Garden of Eden and to mankind's original temptation, which was to be like God. And so we could say that the Apple logo is about knowledge or about enlightenment. And we all know, right, people who use Apple products are smarter and wiser <laughs> and cooler and more hip than other people, Right. That's what they want you to think, at least, isn't it? Well, we we live in a world of logos. And some of the smartest people in our world, they they spend their lives staying up late at night just trying to dream up clear and, and compelling logos. They just want people to see their logo and think, I want to be associated with that logo and what it stands for. And I want to buy what that logo stands for. And all of that, it just brings us to a very important question because... For 2,000 years now, the simplest expression of the Christian faith is right up here. For 2,000 years, the clearest, the most widely recognized symbol of what the Christian faith stands for is two pieces of wood stuck together on which criminals were executed. In other words, uh, an instrument of death is our corporate logo. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is the logo on which you've built your life. And there's a question that really demands to be answered. That question is why? Why a cross? Just think about it. I mean, get real practical. If you were trying to create a movement, a movement that would attract people from all around the world to sign up and be a part, why in the world would you choose something like this? I mean, nobody in our day would choose a logo like this, would they? Just to give you an example of what we're talking about here, um, I want to ask you a question. How likely is it that PG&E would choose for their logo an electric (laughs) chair? And how likely is it that PG&E would then adopt this slogan as their corporate slogan? The power is on. And how likely would it be that you would ever read an ad like this for PG&E, an ad that would say whether it's slow and steady for your George Foreman grill or a life-claiming jolt during an execution, PG&E is there for you. We've been frying burgers and people since 1942. (laughs) When it's PG&E, you can be sure the power is on, <laughs> except during an occasional energy crisis in California for which we apologize. <laughs> now, we're laughing, but it's really pretty serious, and, and I, I, I want to kind of try to get us thinking this way to make this point, because for many of us, we've sort of forgotten what a cross is really all about. In fact, uh, just a quick survey, and there's no uh, criticism, no condemnation here, but just to kind of make us think about it, how many of you right now on your person are wearing some form of jewelry, necklace, bracelet, anything at all that has a cross? See, all across the room. And there, again, there, there's no criticism for that. But, you know, <laughs> how likely would it be for you to get a necklace with a little electric chair dangling around your neck? Or to get a bracelet that had a hangman's noose hanging off and kind of swinging there. See, we've kind of forgotten what the cross really represents in its original form. We've forgotten the shock of what it stood for. And I want you just to be reminded of this. The cross was not the sign of victory or a winner. The cross is a sign of death. The cross is not a sign of abundance. It is the sign of ultimate loss. The cross is not a sign of status, but it is the ultimate expression of humiliation. And the cross is definitely not a sign of knowledge and enlightenment and wisdom, but a sign of foolishness in the eyes of the world. You see, one of the most profound mysteries of the Christian faith is that the God of the universe, the God who holds all power and all wealth, should choose a cross as the essential expression of His heart and his love, and his character. And we need to understand this. Whether or not you have ever come to the cross personally, whether or not it expresses your life at this moment, by the time you leave in a few minutes this room, I, I want you to be very clear about what the cross means. I want you to understand something of the pain of the cross, and I want you to understand Something of the, the power of the cross, the, the impact that the cross can make in our own lives, how the cross gives us hope. And then we want to look at how we can be a people of the cross, what it means to follow Jesus in the way that he invites us to follow him. I just want us to be real clear this morning about what the cross is about. So let's begin here. You can write this in your message notes. First of all, God wants us to understand the pain of the cross, Now, to understand the cross, you need to understand something of the history of crucifixion. In the ancient world, the Romans knew a lot about how to execute people because they did it quite a bit. They knew how to execute people very cheaply. They could use burning or stoning, and they did. They knew how to execute people swiftly with a stroke of a sword. They did that too often. They knew how to execute people privately and quietly. Maybe you remember the story of the philosopher Socrates, how he was killed uh, by being forced to drink hemlock, uh, poison, this very dignified private ceremony for his execution with a few friends around. So why crucifixion? Now, crucifixion was much more cumbersome, complex, complicated. It required four soldiers and a centurion to oversee the soldiers. It took hours, sometimes even days. In other words, it would cost the Roman government a lot more money. So why? Why crucifixion? Well, They used crucifixion when they wanted to do two things, primarily. They used it when they wanted to maximize the pain suffered by the condemned man because death by crucifixion typically takes an agonizingly long time. And then second, they used it when they wanted to maximize the public humiliation of the person being crucified. They would force, typically, the condemned man to place the crossbeam on his back, and then to lead a long procession through the heart of town. And they would deliberately choose the longest and the most crowded route where uh, everyone would see. Soldiers would walk in front of the condemned man holding a sign on which his uh, crime was printed, pronouncing that crime to the whole population. And they Their intent was that by the time they got to the place of execution, it would be this very public deal. They would attract this huge crowd of people, and these people would taunt, and these people would humiliate the person hanging on the cross until he died. They would make it a public spectacle, kind of like a sporting event in our day. And the Romans liked to do this in occupied territories like Israel. Uh, They wanted to do this particularly when they were in an area where the people were hostile towards them and were apt to rebel and to try to gain their freedom. The Romans wanted to discourage that, and so they would use crucifixion most often in cases of treason or insurrection. It was such a cruel form of death that by law, Roman law, could not be used on Roman citizens. It was only used on foreigners or slaves. And if you were a Roman citizen, it didn't matter what your crime was. You couldn't be crucified. It was such an excruciatingly painful death. And it is important that we understand something about the pain Jesus experienced on the cross for you and me. This pain was, first of all, a physical pain. Crucifixion, it caused unimaginable physical pain in many cases, as we know with Jesus from reading the Gospels, the condemned man would first be beaten. And they would use a whip with leather straps. And you've seen examples of this. I've shown you examples of this. It would be leather straps that had small pieces of metal or bone or sharp stone, sometimes jagged pieces of glass attached to the ends of the leather, uh, things that were designed to cut deeply into the flesh. And the, the beating, the whipping would cause such profuse bleeding that if the centurion did not supervise this carefully, many times uh, the man would die uh, from the beating. Uh, if he survived, they would put the crossbeam of the cross on that same back and shoulders that had been beaten and the man would carry the crossbeam of the cross through the town to the place of execution. And When they got there, the cross beam would be laid on the ground over the vertical beam of the cross and the condemned man would be laid in the cross and, and then the soldiers would take a large spike, probably six to eight inches in length, and they would put that spike just below the left wrist. They wouldn't put it in the hands like we see in art uh, work, because if you did that, when he got on the cross, it would just rip through. Uh, the man would fall off the cross. So they put it between the bones. Uh, not only did it hold him there, but it was also a place... Uh, rich in nerves, and so therefore uh, horribly, horribly painful. They would drive that spike through the left wrist, and they'd take the right hand, do the same thing again, driving both arms into the wood of the cross, and then they would take his feet, right foot against the wood of the cross, left foot over the right foot, and they would either bind them or put a spike through them, through the arch of both feet, into the wood of the cross. And they would then raise the cross, And on that cross, the man who was condemned would have to raise himself up on his crucified feet in order to breathe, to exhale. Of course, this would put his full weight on the nail that would go through those feet, and it would rip the nerves between the metatarsal bones in the feet, causing searing pain. And when that became unbearable, and he had to inhale, he would have to sag down just to breathe, but then that would transfer the weight into his wrists, the nails there causing more searing pain. And the Romans were very good at this. They deliberately left the arms and the legs of the crucified man sufficiently flexed so that this victim could go up and down for a longer period of time. They did it to prolong the agony. And this man, condemned, crucified, will be left on the cross for hours. Exposed to heat, exposed to cold, the skin on his already beaten back getting lacerated even more deeply as he scraped up and down the rough wood, all the while struggling for breath. This usually went on for hours, and oftentimes it could go on for days until the condemned man eventually died, most often of suffocation. See, this is the physical suffering of an average criminal on the cross, And Jesus, God's son, experienced this for you. A few years ago, many of us saw the movie The Passion of the Christ. Some of you may watch it again this season. And when you watch that movie, you are confronted uh, with this pain of Jesus in a way that we had probably never experienced before. But even seeing that movie doesn't capture all that he went through. See, we need to keep in mind that this is what Jesus was going through when he looked down from that cross on those soldiers who were crucifying him, on the mobs around him who were taunting him and ridiculing him, when he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. There's something interesting to consider in this. Maybe you've noticed this reading the Gospels. The Gospels actually say very little about Jesus' physical suffering. In fact, in Mark chapter 15, verse 24, it just says, and they crucified him. I think the Gospels say very little about the physical suffering of the cross for the reason that most people in that day understood it. They knew what it was about. It was part of their experience in life. But I think there's another reason, maybe deeper, that they don't talk about it so much. I think the Gospels don't go into that deal detail because they want our focus to be somewhere else. They want us, our focus to be on the most significant aspect of Jesus' pain, and that is his spiritual pain. On the cross, there's something different that Jesus went through, different from anyone else ever crucified. Jesus went through a form of spiritual suffering that you and I can only dimly imagine. It was a suffering that by comparison would make his physical suffering almost inconsequential. And for the next few moments, I want to ask you to try as best you can to reflect on this. Because the Bible says that on the cross, he who knew no sin, he who never experienced guilt, he who never had a moment's shame, who never once felt regret, who only from all eternity had been pure and innocent and holy, he, Jesus, God's son, became sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become sin. The righteousness of God. He who knew no sin became sin for our sake. I want you to try and think for a moment. Think about the darkest thing that you have ever done. We all have something. If that something was flashed up on the screen for everyone to see in this room, it would cause you the most intense pain and shame and humiliation. Maybe you've betrayed a marital vow. Maybe you've gone through an abortion. Maybe it was an act of deceit that caused you to lose a job or lose a friendship. Maybe it is a habit or a pattern in your life, even at this moment, that you would be so ashamed of if other people knew, and your whole life right now is about keeping that a secret. Remember the sense of pain over that and how you would give anything to have that maybe back, that dark moment. Now, imagine experiencing the weight of that sin and then countless other sins that you have committed through your life. So many of our sins, we don't even remember them anymore. And then on top of that, add to it not just the guilt of your sin, but the guilt and the pain and the shame and the regret, the destructiveness to the soul of every sin for ever committed by every fallen human being who has ever lived. Every act, of physical abuse, every murder from the beginning of time, Cain and Abel right down to today and on into the future, every seduction, every betrayal, every deception, every rape. Think about the Holocaust, the horror of that. Think about every mean, spiteful word, every greed-driven business deal that impoverished and ruined other people's lives, Think about every little shabby lie ever told. Think about every time someone has lashed out in anger, whether in words or with a fist at a child and maybe wounded a child's tender heart, maybe for an entire lifetime, and then try to imagine feeling the horror and the despair of all of that sin focused down into one heart. Imagine experiencing the judgment anger of a holy and righteous God toward all of that sin, all of that awfulness directed at you. And then think about this. Jesus, God's Son, who from eternity past had never experienced anything other than perfect, Intimacy with his father. Never anything but joy-filled, delightful love and community with his father throughout all eternity. Jesus had never known a single moment of what it's like to be lonely. He had never known a single moment of feeling unloved by his father. And now on the cross, you can see why he cries out in those mysterious words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What would it mean to be wholly forsaken by God? See, the truth is, in this world, we will never know Some of you may know something of the feeling of being estranged from God or maybe something distant from God or or, or maybe feeling like God's hand of favor is not on your life, but none of us can know what it means to be wholly, completely, totally forsaken by God. Even people who defy God, shake their fists in God's face, deny that He exists, even those people experience God's good gifts every day. They get up and breathe God's air. They get up and they enjoy the food that God created. They get up and they, they experience what it means to be in relationship with other people who know those joys. They look around at the world God created and they get to enjoy its beauty. You see, on the cross, Jesus experienced something that we can only dimly imagine. The horror of what it would be to be utterly forsaken by God To be in complete spiritual darkness, spiritual aloneness, utter abandonment, utter hopelessness. You see, this is why the night before his crucifixion in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus cried out and said, My soul is in anguish. I am sorrowful to the point of death. Already the sorrow was so great on him that he, he thought he might die. Again, his physical suffering was nothing compared to this, as horrifying as it was. He was mistreated by the authorities. He was mocked by the crowds. He was abandoned, deserted, and betrayed by his closest friends. But his real suffering was a spiritual pain that we can hardly imagine. Galatians 3.13 says that on the cross, Jesus redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. In other words, he experienced supernatural suffering and guilt that you and I will never know so that you can, if you only will, experience a supernatural healing and forgiveness that you could never earn. This is the pain of the cross. And it leads us to a second aspect of the cross. God wants us to understand the power of the cross. Now, it was very evident to onlookers That what took place on the cross when Jesus died was an act of extraordinary spiritual power. Think of the signs that we're told about. We're we're told in the text that when he hung on the cross, the land became dark. In the middle of the day, sun went into eclipse. There's an expression of the spiritual darkness of what was going on. And then when Jesus died, we are told that the earth shook and the rocks broke apart. We are told that when Jesus died, the veil in the temple that that was closed off, uh, the place called the Holy of Holies, that place where God was thought to dwell in a special way, closed off from everyone, that veil that had sealed that place off where only a high priest could go in. And then only one time a year, when Jesus died, that veil was torn from top and to bottom, ripped in two. It's no wonder that a centurion looking at the cross after Jesus died said, truly, this was the Son of God. See, the cross was an act of extraordinary spiritual power, and I want us to understand the kind of power that was released in the cross. The first aspect of that that I want us to see is the power of forgiveness. Because on that one man, on Jesus Christ, on the cross was the collective guilt of the human race, including your guilt and my guilt. Your guilt was on the cross with Jesus. Your sin was on the cross with Jesus. 1 John 1, 7 says, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And part of what that means is this, whatever you have done, doesn't matter, can be utterly forgiven by God. Some of you walked in here this morning and you are covered over with guilt, weighed down with the burden of guilt, you can walk out of here this morning forgiven, your conscience clean. It's possible. It can happen. And it can happen not because of anything you do while you're in here, not because in in some way you would earn it or deserve it or, or you're a good enough person. It will happen because of the power of the cross. This power is the power of access to God. You know, when that veil was ripped in two, what that was showing was that God was now accessible. You see, God had before then never allowed free access to who he was, you know, in his being. Free access because of our sin. And when the curtain was ripped in two, it was like God was saying to the world, I want you to have access to me. I want you to come on in. You can come to me anytime you want to. You can live in my presence all the time. And we should never take that for granted. See, the human race had lived under the sad truth that we are all sinful and God is holy and we have all been cut off from Him. But at the cross, God says, the veil is ripped in two. You can come on in. You can approach my throne, the throne of my grace, and you can approach me with boldness. Anybody here need wisdom? Anybody here ever need Guidance? Anybody here ever get discouraged and you need to be comforted? Anybody here ever get lonely and you need a friend? God says, You can come to me anytime. Anytime. As fallen and broken and as sin stained as we all are, God says to us, You can come. You can come. And where do we get the power to do that? It's the power of the cross. The cross is also the power of reconciliation. It's interesting. The cross not only addresses the brokenness between us and God, but it also addresses the brokenness between us and other people. In the cross, we are told in the cross that we can be reconciled not just to God, but also to other people. A couple of decades after the cross, the apostle Paul is going to be writing a letter to Christians in Ephesus and he's going to write about how the biggest enemies in that day were were, were the Jewish people and the Gentiles, bitter enemies, wouldn't eat together, wouldn't even speak to each other. And Paul writes this in Ephesians 2.14, for he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. Paul says that When Jesus died on the cross, in his body, he tore down what had separated Jewish people from Gentile people, people who had been bitter enemies now could become brothers and sisters. And it happened as a historical fact back then. And it still happens today. People who would never, ever be together, never associate with one another, can come together together. At the cross, people of different ethnicities, people of different nationalities, male and female, estranged people, parents and children, husbands and wives. Because, you see, when we discover that the ground is level at the foot of the cross, when we discover that there's really only one kind of people, people made in God's image and people loved by God, people fallen in in sin, and people who can be redeemed by the death of Jesus on the cross, when we discover that, then people get reconciled. And that's the power of the cross. And I just want to say something right now. If you are here today and you are not reconciled with someone, and it's not because of them, because sometimes we can do everything we, we can do and that other person refuses and we shouldn't be made to feel guilty for that. But if you are here today and you are not reconciled with someone and you have not forgiven them, you are holding on to bitterness and resentment. You are angry at them. You are saying to yourself, they don't deserve my forgiveness whatever it is. You're not reconciled to them and it's primarily because of an attitude in your heart and I'm telling you you're not living under the power of the cross. You are missing out on something very important that Jesus, God's son, gave his life for. And he wants you to know that. He wants you to know the power of reconciliation. Now, some of you may say, well, I just can't. I can't let it go. Well, then you need to know this next thing. There's also in the cross the power of victory over sin. The cross is more powerful than our sin. We sing a song, grace that is greater than all my sin, you don't have to remain under the power of sin. Paul writes about this in Colossians 2:15, an amazing thing that happened on the cross. He says, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Paul says, when Jesus died, he disarmed spiritual powers and authorities that were opposed to God, and like the evil one, Satan. Jesus made a public spectacle of them. You remember? What do we say the cross was about? The cross was about making a public spectacle of the one crucified. That's what the people thought they were doing to Jesus. They were humiliating him. They were making a public spectacle of him. But when Jesus died, he said no. When Jesus died, he was really showing the ultimate triumph of the self-sacrificing love of God. He was saying any darkness that tries to stand in the way of that love will be defeated. That sin And shame and guilt and death defeated on the cross. That is the power of victory over sin. And part of what that means right here, right now, today, friends, is this you do not have to be defeated by sin, you can begin to change you may feel stuck, you may be trapped, you may have tried, and you may have tried many times, and you feel like there's no way out. The cross says no. You can be victorious over sin. And maybe maybe part of what needs to happen in your life is you need to get some other people around you. You need to get some other people to help you. You need to get your small group. You need to talk to your pastors. I don't know. But you don't have to stay defeated by sin. You don't have to be trapped or stuck. Why? Because of the power of the cross. You see, this is why all of this, for 2,000 years, at the center of the Christian faith is not a candle, not a star, but a cross. This is why the Apostle Paul says, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You see, to the world, the cross just looks like humiliation and death, and they don't want that. The world wants victory. The world wants abundance. The world wants status, and the world wants enlightenment. I just want to tell you today, I'd rather have the cross. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And that power is available for you today, right now. Right now. The cross is power. It's power. And in that power, there's hope. Hope starts here, right at the cross. Let me show you finally the third thing. God's chief desire for us is that we become a people of the cross. Now, I want to be clear on this. This is not a criticism. This is not a condemnation of anybody wearing a cross, okay? But God's primary concern is not about the visible display of the cross. It's not about us hanging crosses in churches or putting them on hillsides or wearing them as jewelry around our necks. There's nothing wrong with that. But God's primary concern is not That God's primary concern is that the self giving, self sacrificial love that is supremely expressed on the cross be publicly displayed in our lives, in this room, in boardrooms, in your living room, in whatever room you find yourself, that you would be a man or a woman of the cross. Jesus once said some of the most sobering words ever recorded in human history. They are words that have changed more lives than any other words. He said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. And so I just want to ask you right now, Southwinds, are you people of the cross? Have you chosen to become a man or a woman of the cross? Have you told God in your heart and then begun to work it out in your life? God, every day, when I get up daily, I want to take up my cross. I want to follow you. And God, whatever in my life is displeasing or dishonouring to you, I will crucify it. Have you become a person of the cross? I want you to write this down. It's not going to be in the screen, but I want you to think about it, just five words. Following Jesus always requires death. It is a death that leads to true life, but it's always a kind of death. There is no true life without a cross. And here's why I'm saying this. We live in a world that wants life without a cross. And maybe some of us who name the name of Jesus, who claim to be his followers, maybe we're trying that too. Maybe we want Jesus' life without the death. Maybe, maybe we want to hold on to the hope that comes from having our sins forgiven while we keep on sinning. While we keep on holding on to our pride and to our anger and to our bitterness. While we keep on trying to find whatever it is we think we are looking for in success and in status and in stuff or whatever. So what do you need to die to today? You just need to give it to Jesus. We're talking about hope this Easter. And again, I'm telling you, hope starts here at the cross Jesus died for my sins. And in the cross, there is hope. Hope in the forgiveness of my sins. Hope in freedom from the power of sin over my life. And hope in the indestructible life that only comes when you and I die to sin and to this world and to ourselves. Hope starts here in the reality that at the cross, Jesus, God's son, died for my sins. Would you bow your heads as we pray together? Father God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your love that would give us your only son. And We thank you that your only son would love us so much that he would die for us while we were still enemies. Lord, you have spoken through your word and you are speaking to us now and, and all across this room, you are, you are telling us things that you want us to do, how you want us to respond to your word. And, and so may we in obedience think on and then act on whatever your word is teaching us. This week, Father, May we live as people of the cross. May we die to whatever we need to die to so that we can know the fullness of your life, so that we can show that that good life to a world that is dark and, and dying and needs you. We pray to you, Father, now, in the name of your Son, Jesus, the one who has died and freed us from our sins by his blood. In his name we pray. And all God's people together say, Amen.